So this morning we started with John's first letter and his exhortation over and over and over again to love one another. And then in 1 John 4.10 we read, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as expiation for our sins. And so the first movement of love is always God's love for us. The first movement in our relationship with Christ is always his movement towards us. And we looked at different examples from the gospel this afternoon and how our Lord just entered into the life of the Samaritan woman at the well. How he entered into the life of the crippled man at the pool of Bethsaida. And those were like extraordinary ways in which he enters into our life. And then there's also just the ordinary ways that he enters into our life. You know, looking back at John chapter 2, and the way the first disciples were called. Or chapter 1, verse 35. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples, And as he watched Jesus walk by, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard what he said and followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following him and said to them, What are you looking for? What are you looking for? Sometimes I ask people that in spiritual direction. What do you want God to do for you? Uh, that's a good question. I don't really know. And so their answer is simply, Rabbi, where are you staying? So they don't really say what they're looking for. They just say that they want to be wherever he is. They want to be wherever he is. Just, Rabbi, where are you staying? I just want to be around you. And he says to them, come and you'll see. And so they went and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter, was one of those two who heard John and followed Jesus. So he first went to his brother and told him, we have found the Messiah. And he brought him to Jesus. The next day, he decided to go to Galilee, found Philip, and Jesus said to him, follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, the town of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one about whom Moses wrote in the law and also the prophets, Jesus, son of Joseph, from Nazareth. Nathanael says to him, can anything good come from Nazareth? 
And Philip says, come and see. And when Jesus sees him coming toward him, he says of him, here is a true Israelite. There is no duplicity in him. And Nathaniel says, how did you know me? Before Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree. And so for Nathaniel, his experience of Jesus is simply that Jesus had noticed him. That Jesus kind of just showed up in his life. And made an impression on him. And so we can see the kind of extraordinary ways our Lord shows up, and then the just ordinary ways that he shows up. When he shows up in an extraordinary way, it's more easily counted to be something like mercy. Now, mercy is what we experience when we experience the fact that we're loved, even though we know we don't deserve it. You know, when, we figure, when we realize we're loved, when we know we don't deserve it. And that's what the Samaritan woman finds. when she encounters our Lord. And some of us have these really big mercy stories. And then some people are jealous of people with really big mercy stories. Like, <clears throat> I have a bunch of really big mercy stories. And... You know, one of those is a story I don't tell usually, so I'll tell it because most people haven't heard it. Um, it's my DUI story. So when, when I was in Rome in graduate school, I kind of got into this big depression. I made allusion to that before. Our Lord entered into my life in a really profound way, um, which involved me going to therapy for the summer. And, uh, and so a lot of times I tell my whole therapy story and there was a great like mercy in that moment. And so, so I ended up coming back to the States for the summer. I went to Michigan to go to therapy. And while I was there, I became reacquainted with some really important people from my past and I was working through a lot of family of origin wounds and places where, you know, I had ruptures in my life. And, you know, because I come from a family where both of my parents were married, divorced. They each had children. They married each other. My mother died when I was two. My dad remarried. Had three more children. Um, so I have four half-brothers, four half-sisters, but I'm the only child in my family. Um, I'm usually the oldest, but I went to visit my brothers and I'd be the youngest. And so I had all these identity issues, you know, and, uh, and like birth order, like studies don't really work on me because I became a chameleon is really what I did. And I'm sort of, I'm sorting through all that in therapy. 
And as I'm sorting through it, there was some of my past sins had come kind of to the fore in my imagination. And some of them um, from like my 20s, I, I didn't know what to do with. And, uh, and I had a nun therapist who's great, but I just didn't feel like I could tell this nun therapist like all of my really deep, dark things that I'm really ashamed of. Like, I know none of you know what that's like. None of my spiritual directees know what that's like, right? And, uh, and so it was causing me a lot of anxiety. And I started thinking things like, oh, what am I doing? My life's like a bunch of hypocrisy. I have all this, like, stuff from my past. And the weekend came, and it was my high school reunion, and so I leave Alma, Michigan, and drive down to where I grew up in Pinckney. It's this little small town. There's about 200 in my graduating class. Where it's like a bunch of rednecks. And, uh, and I go to my high school reunion. And when I'm the night before, everybody went to this like redneck bar where they had really good scotch, but they didn't know how to pour it. Right? Which means like you order one and you get three. And, well, they poured it, so I'm going to drink it. And I way overdrank. Also in the midst of this kind of anxiety about, you know, my past sins and where my life is going. Um, I think at the end of the night, I, like, went to the bathroom or something. I came out. Everybody was gone. And so my choice was I can either sleep in my car which you can get a ticket for as if you were driving your car or I can try to drive my car. And if I realize I can't drive my car, I'll just pull off the side of the road and I'll walk like really smart, like calling the person who told me to call them if I need a ride, didn't even enter into my brain. Right. Like, cause, cause I didn't know how to ask people for help at the time. And so, so I tried to drive and realized, uh, I really, this is stupid. I'm going to drift off to the shoulder of the road. Start going to the shoulder of the road. Whoop. Police had been following me the entire time. And I ended up getting arrested and taken to jail. And I remember getting, like, booked. Just totally humiliating. I'm in, like, an orange jumpsuit and... Have my got my picture taken. I have a bracelet somewhere in my rectory. And uh, and I'm thinking to myself, this is probably what I deserve for what I have done in my life. All told, all the like stupid things that I've done in my past that are coming to the surface. This is probably what I deserve. Wake up the next morning, and. Um, and I kind of sat up in, on the mat that I was laying on, crying out to our Lord from my heart. And I heard our Lord say to me really distinctly, Sean, if you want to punish yourself for your past, you can be in here. But if you want me to love you, I'll love you. And in that moment, it cut through all of that shame.
Like it just cut through all of that because like at my worst, our Lord's response was simply, if you want me to love you, I'll love you. And then I was able to move forward from all of that. You know, I ended up having to switch from the therapy I was in to an alcohol treatment center for 30 days where I learned all about 12 step groups and brain science of addiction and things like that, that our Lord has now used in my ministry. But that was like an extraordinary moment of mercy, you know, an extraordinary moment of mercy. And those are things that our Lord does in our life in order to bring about conversion in our hearts. But there's also the reality that, like, we don't have to go all the way to the bottom of the escalator in order to encounter Jesus. Now, that was something that somebody said to me in alcohol rehab, actually. He said, because I wasn't like a real alcoholic when I was there. Um, and this guy just said to me, you know, you're really lucky because you don't have to go all the way to the bottom of the escalator. Like you can get off and you don't have to go to the bottom. And that always stuck with me. But I think maybe in my spiritual life, I started to believe I had to always go to the bottom of the escalator in order to find Jesus. Like Jesus only hangs out at the bottom of the escalator. <clears throat> and we can forget that he just wants to show up in our life in a normal way, too. Now, he just wants to show up in our life in a normal way. And we can experience him as he shows up in our life in just the everyday normal way. Sometimes people get into that kind of a trap where I've talked to people who they only feel loved by God when they go to confession after committing a mortal sin. So what's their motivation to actually be converted? But our Lord really can just like show up in a normal way, like he did for Nathaniel, like he did for the first disciples that he called. And sometimes that normal way is just us saying to him, okay, like Jesus, I need you to show up in my life right now. And seeing how it is <clears throat> that he comes and he reminds us who we are. You know, and that's happened during this weekend. Where our Lord has just simply presented himself. And as we continue to look at these other places in the gospel according to John and the people that 
our Lord encounters. You know, he enters into their life in order to glorify them. And it's important for us to reflect on both of those scenarios. Now, for some of us, there may be some things from our past that haven't been resolved, or some things from our past that are, there still are obstacles to love in our lives. There can be this obstacle that's about, uh, Jesus, why did God let all these things happen to me? Or we can try to figure out, you know, like what happened. And it's important for us to do that. But at the end of the day, there is this answer that our Lord gives, which is it happens so that God could be glorified. Now, there's this other healing in John's gospel where there's somebody who's deaf from birth that has a speech impediment. And I'm looking for it. Okay, that's the man born blind. So this is chapter 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And so there the disciples are asking that kind of a question. Right? Like, what happened that they ended up this way? It's not that much different than the questions we ask when we ask questions like, you know, what happened that my child is no longer attending Mass? What happened that... You know, this other family member became a drug addict. Like, what happened? You know, that this priest, we find out, has been unfaithful, and this priest hasn't. Like, what happened? And Jesus answered, Neither he nor his parents sinned. It's so that the works of God might be made visible through him. We have to do the works of the one who sent me while it is day. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he said this, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva and smeared the clay on his eyes. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. So he went and washed and he came back able to see. And so sometimes it's just that simple that it happens so that the works of God may be glorified in him. That the works of God might be made visible through him. And that's kind of one of those answers. Like, uh, it might not be that important why it happened. What's important is that so that the works of God might be made visible in you. And they become visible in us as we just allow him to enter into our life and transform it. 
when we allow him to just show up. So that he can transform it. And maybe the thing that we should be most vigilant about or concerned about is, okay, am I open to letting the works of God be made visible in me? And that happens in those major mercy moments. But it also happens simply when we're able to surrender our frustrations or our stresses or whatever is going on in our life. And as I spent last night in prayer, that's the most profound thing that our Lord is saying to me on this retreat is our Lord saying to me, like, uh, I'm just going to show up in your life right now and it's okay. It doesn't have to be like a major big deal. I'm just like going to be here. And and I think the ordinariness of that threw me off. But also brought an immense amount of peace. Our Lord gives the same answer to that kind of a question when he goes to raise Lazarus from the dead. In chapter 11, a man was ill, Lazarus, from Bethany at the village of Mary and his sister Martha. Mary was the one who had anointed the Lord with perfumed oil and dried his feet with her hair. It was her brother Lazarus who was ill. So the sister sent word to him saying, Master, the one you love is ill. Jesus heard this and said, This illness is not to end in death, but is for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was ill, he remained for two days in the place where he was. That's like my favorite line. (laughs) Now Jesus loved them, so he just stayed where he was when he found out he was on his deathbed. Because it wasn't to end in death, but that the works of God may be glorified in him. And so he stays behind long enough for Lazarus to actually die. And then he shows up, and both Martha and Mary separately say to him, Lord, if you were here, our brother wouldn't have died. And then he goes and he calls him, Lazarus, come out. And the works of God are glorified in him. And so it becomes an important part of our prayer to pray that the works of God are glorified in the suffering people around us. And that the works of God can be glorified in us, in whatever it is in our own life that we're working through. And sometimes we're like, "Uh, I don't really want the works of God to be glorified in me. I just kind of want to pretend like it never happened.
which is kind of a natural tendency. But after the resurrection, we kind of see somebody else who has that sort of a tendency. And it's when Jesus shows up in the upper room with his disciples. Which is John chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the doors were locked where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive are forgiven them, and whose sins you retain are retained. And so he shows up in the upper room after his resurrection, after he goes through his passion, after he experiences the greatest suffering that's ever been experienced. But Thomas isn't there. And so one of the, Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples said to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger into the nail marks and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And so we call him Doubting Thomas. But my question is, what did Thomas doubt? Did Thomas doubt that Jesus was raised from the dead? Or did he doubt that his wounds were glorified? I think it's a legitimate question, because when Jesus appears in the upper room, he shows them his hands and his side, and he says, peace be with you. So they're telling the story to Thomas, Jesus showed up, and he still had nail marks in his hands. And his, and his, like, there's no way, unless I put my finger in there, I don't believe it's there. So he doesn't say, unless I can slap him on the shoulder, I won't believe you. Or unless I touch his head, I won't believe you. He says, unless I put my finger in the nail mark, I won't believe you. Because I can't believe that his wounds would be resurrected. It would make more sense that when he died, every sign that he had ever suffered would be removed. Like, I'd prefer my Jesus resurrected with no wounds. Because then I could be resurrected with no wounds. And a lot of times it's hard for us to conceptualize that too because we have an idea that healing and changing and conversion means well I can pretend like my sinful past never happened or I just want to erase that part of my history I 
I just want to tell everybody this story that I've always just been a really good, perfect Catholic. But the story that our Lord's body tells is that, like, he suffered greatly because of the sin of the world and then was transformed. And his wounds are transformed. And so a week later, his disciples were again inside. And Thomas was with them. Jesus came, stood in their midst, and said, Peace be with you. And then he goes to Thomas and says, Put your finger here and see my hands. Bring your hand and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believe. And then Thomas says, My Lord and my God. And entering into our Lord's wounds, he comes to believe. And what our Lord invites all of us to is to live that kind of resurrected life where every part of our story is redeemed by him. And when we come to fully surrender to him in that way, It's then that we experience like every moment that he's with us as a moment of mercy. Even the ordinary, everyday ways that he shows up in our life, we come to experience as a moment of mercy because we always are aware of the fact that he continues to love us for no reason. He continues to love us even though we did nothing to deserve it. It's not that we have loved him, but that he loved us. As he enters into our life. And so for the next 20 minutes or so, I just invite you to just ask our Lord to reveal himself to you and to come to experience him as he comes toward you. And so I'm just going to do like a silent procession with the Eucharist around the chapel, and I'll just like bring the monstrance there. As a way of reflecting on what it was like for those first disciples as our Lord just kind of showed up in their life. Or what it was like for the Samaritan woman, the crippled man, the blind man. Whichever character that you choose, to know that our Lord was coming toward them.
And I just invite you to ask him to heal whatever needs to be healed. So that your life may be glorified in him. So that he may be glorified in you. That we may learn to surrender every part of our heart. Every part of our history to him. And to abide in him. As his beloved sons and daughters.